Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is science and we are fully lost in it. So lost, in fact, that um, I think we've um, we've lost Claire for the time being, haven't we, Stu? Well, we have, but Claire's off doing some very important things uh, and she'll be back as soon as she's happy to be back, I guess. Um, but it yeah, is just... an important project she's working on that um, <laughs> we shall report on later. Yeah. Um, but it is just the two of us for now and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll try and squeeze in some guests and things from time to time. But this week, I think it's just you and me, Chris. That's right. It is, Stu. And what have you got for us, Stu? Well, you know, it's, it's a, it's a favorite fallback, uh, which I've always found very comforting. I'm going to be talking about dinosaurs. Hey, as as Jeff Goldblum weirdly pronounces it in Jurassic Park, dinosaurs. Um, and yeah, I'm going to be talking about this. You know, weirdly, there's new research on dinosaurs all the time, and there's a lot of people working on dinosaur science. What can it tell us about you know our lives? Well, I don't know. What can it tell us about dinosaur lives? Quite a lot, apparently. So I'm going to mm. delve into some recently discovered fossils. Obviously, the fossils aren't recent, but they are recently, uh, you know, found and described. Um, that might explain some of the some of the strange characteristics of probably, you know, the fan favorite dinosaur, the Tyrannosaurus Rex. Uh, you know, Excellent. probably one of the most recognizable dinosaurs in the world at any time. Um, yeah, so there's more research, uh, some new research, I should say, about. Um, T-Rex and why it is the shape it is and why that might have been a useful shape to be and all sorts of other interesting things. But I'm just going to also talk a little bit about how recently we actually found out about dinosaurs, which is kind of surprising, really, when you when you look at how popular they are. Hmm. Um, yeah, I've noticed that people very rarely these days refer to at the full name Tyrannosaurus rex as just T-Rex. It's... Um, mm. It's become so well known. Are you going to explain the little arms, the tiny arms? Is that one of the things I, that you're I, going to? I will be into? delving into the to the T Rex's famously tiny arms, um, but also its famously large head. Excellent. Yeah. Well, speaking of famously large heads, I have a story as well. <laughs> um, and <laughs> I have that for a segue. Um, that one will never come up again. I am sure. Um, I, look, I have a story that I had not, I read about this research and I thought, oh, is that a little bit too obscure and technical? But look, it has the term reverse laser in it. And I just cannot go past the concept of a reverse laser. Is so, that, is that a laser that backfires into your face or something? Or like, how does that work? No, it was, it absorbs light instead of emitting it. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah. Great. Also known as an anti-laser or just a time reverse laser. It's a yeah, a reverse laser though is what the term I prefer. And yeah, I'm going to um, yeah, I'm going to go in a bit of bent to reverse lasers. I've realised that 
I look, I don't know whether we have gone into much detail about how lasers work on this show before, so I think I might have to touch on that so I can explain what a laser is before I can explain what a reverse laser is. Yeah, yeah. Start start from the positive laser and go into the negative laser, I think, is the way to go. That's right. So, yes, um, backwards lasers and backwards in time to dinosaurs. That's what we've got for you on this week's episode. And, yeah, on with the show. Now, we know that dinosaurs ruled the Earth for millions of years, but it's worth remembering, I think, that science has really only known about them for around about 200 years. And it's kind of, you know, there's some, there's some um, possible controversy about who first really discovered dinosaurs. But it took a while, even after they figured out that dinosaurs were a thing, what their actual significance was. So the first dinosaur bone that's been kind of recorded by history uh, was dug up in 1677 by a guy called Robert Plott. Um, But he didn't really know, he didn't really understand what he'd actually found. He described that it belonged to a giant human uh, and so he didn't really have any understanding of, of what the bone was that he represented. But the, he did do some amazing drawings of these bones that he found. Apparently none of the collection that he had is still, or no one knows the whereabouts of it. Um, but he did do some really detailed uh, illustrations of the bones and things that he found. So if he was, is he the first recorded actual kind of dinosaur bone? Because isn't there like this theory that legends of giants and dragons and things may have come from fossils that were discovered. Yeah, I mean that that's a possibility, but as you say they they are legends and myths and and we don't really have a detailed mm. enough history of of where those kind of stories originated. But what we do, you know, 1677 is still pretty old, but it wasn't until quite a lot later. It wasn't until the 1820s that a professor of geology at Oxford University looked at a fossilized bone and he concluded that it belonged to a species of extinct reptile. Um, But even he didn't really identify dinosaurs as a thing. He didn't really have any uh, explanation for where this reptile came from or where it went. Um, He called the creature Megalosaurus, which is still actually used as a genus name. So that's the first you know, scientific dinosaur name that we have. But around the same time in the 1820s, uh, Marianne Mantell discovered bones of what she called Iguanodon, which is also ah. a currently used, uh, you know, uh, zoological name for a, a dinosaur um, species. So um, then probably 20-odd years after that, the idea of a family of Dinosauria, which was a huge group of uh, extinct reptiles that had become extinct millions of years before humans even uh, existed. Um, that, that idea appeared in the 1840s, and dinosaurs have been hugely popular uh, ever since. Um, and, you know, every toy shop is full of dinosaur toys even now. Um, but all our understanding of dinosaurs comes mainly from fossils of various extinct species, though, you know, some more recent advances in genetics have allowed us to uh, track the relationships between 
um, birds and existing reptiles and all that sort of stuff. So we do have some sort of idea based on modern DNA, and we are able to compare fossil DNA to to other things and, and figure things out that way. But because, spoiler alert, birds are dinosaurs, isn't that right? Well, more or less, they, they kind of, yeah, they, they are descended from whatever was left over after most of the big dinosaurs went extinct. Um, and there have obviously been gigantic birds at various times on Earth too, which is quite terrifying when you think of, you know, a giant, you know, um, metres tall chicken or something would be a horrifying thing to be exposed to. But all of our real ideas about dinosaurs come from fossils, the kind of dinosaurs that there were and all of that sort of thing. And I think the word fossil itself is very interesting. It literally means something dug out of the ground. So it's from the same original word as fossic, as in fossicking for, you know, for gold or something like that. It's just to dig around. And the word fossil was already used, even though people didn't necessarily mean it to mean something really old. So fossil fuels have been called fossil fuels for a really long time, well before anyone knew, oh, they're actually hundreds of millions of years old. So it's okay. literally that they're dug out of the ground is why they're fossil fuels, not because they're really old, which is what the word has the connotation of meaning now. Um, so the modern use has changed quite a lot, and now it means something old. Uh, but new fossils are being found all the time. Obviously, they're not new, but they're newly discovered. Uh, and they expand our understanding of dinosaurs and evolution. Uh, one of the most famous dinosaurs of all, and I mentioned uh, than before is the Tyrannosaurus Rex, which is, you know, arguably the star of the original Jurassic Park film, um, among other film appearances in various forms. I mean, if you see a dinosaur in something, it's likely to be either one of those big, long, long, skinny necked, skinny tailed ones, or it's going to be a T Rex, or it's going to be a T Rex eating one of those other ones. Your Triceratopses and your Stegosauruses also often make a, an appearance. Ah, oh, yeah, look, they're, they're definitely up there in the pantheon of famous dinosaurs for sure. But I think the T-Rex always, you know, if someone wants to have a dramatic portrait of a dinosaur, it's going to be a T-Rex, usually with a volcano in the background. Um, that's certainly how I used to draw them. Now, the T-Rex is undoubtedly scary. It's got a giant head. It can almost split its head in half to open its jaws wide enough to eat pretty much anyone. Um, but it's also somewhat comical because it's got those tiny little forearms uh, that don't really seem to do a lot. Um, I mean, the T-Rex is scary enough and no one's no one would ever be game enough to, to laugh at the tiny arms of the T-Rex, I'm sure. Um, but... It's, it's sort of always been a bit of a mystery. Why does it have these tiny little arms? They don't really seem to have a role. So the recently discovered fossil of another dinosaur in Argentina called Meraxes gigas or gigas suggests that T-Rex wasn't just a comical anomaly, but that having tiny forearms was possibly a common trait for, for apex predators in the, in the age of the dinosaurs. So... So was this a related, a related animal? Well, we know that it, it it looked a lot like a T-Rex. So the the Meraxes has a very similar body shape to T-Rex, a giant head, tiny arms, and very likely a similar lifestyle, which is 
eating other dinosaurs, according to a paper that was published in July in the journal Current Biology. Current Biology. <laughs> it is, yeah, amusingly titled <laughs> Current Biology. Um, but the Maraxis went extinct around 20 million years before the T-Rex appeared. Oh. So it was actually a much earlier dinosaur, and it's not actually closely related to the, to the Tyrannosaurus. They're related in, you know, in the same way that monkeys are related to apes. Um, they're, they're similar, but they're not, they're not closely related uh, creatures. Um, but the, the, the T-Rex is not descended from the Maraxis either. It's, it, they're completely different branches okay. of the same, uh, the same group of dinosaurs. So the body pattern being the same is an example of convergent evolution where two organisms in separate places or in separate time periods have evolved to look similar because they have a similar uh, niche in the ecology of when they were alive. Uh, a relatively recent hypothesis about the tiny arms is that Tyrannosaurus rex and possibly Maraxis would fight over their food. So there'd be multiple T-Rexes or multiple Maraxes fighting over the carcass of a, uh, a killed dinosaur. And the reason that they've got tiny arms is because they would be less likely to get bitten by other dinosaurs while they were feeding. So this, this was a theory. This was actually published in, in a journal in 2018, um, about the tiny arms theory, but it's it's a bit up in the air. It's we, we would need to know more about their their actual behaviour, which is very very hard to tell from fossil evidence. Um, the the Maraxis arms also uh, are apparently more muscular than the T Rex's arms, so they're sort of more more developed musculature, and I guess they can tell that from you know the shape of the bones and things like that, um, which they they think suggests that it had other functions, but the T Rex didn't use the arms for the same purpose. But the other thing mm. the two dinosaurs have in common is their gigantic heads. And this is, you know, th this is what gives them that iconic sort of shape is that they have a very big head, tiny arms, and a sort of muscular uh, rear legs as well. Now, the gigantic head is an important feature for a carnivorous predator, and it's probably an absolute necessity. So if you're a carnivore, a meat-based diet doesn't necessarily give a predator all the nutrients it needs. So meat is very dense in uh, proteins and things like that, but it's not necessarily got all of the, you know, the vitamins and minerals that a growing dinosaur needs. So modern predators like wolves have clamping jaws that allow them to bite through bones. And being able to bite through bones, they can access bone marrow, which has a lot of phosphates. The phosphates are important for their survival, so therefore they've adapted this ability to chew into the actual bones or break the bones open with their jaws. But wolves have jaws in which the upper and lower teeth fit together, which is called occlusion, so when they sort of interlock. And that gives them the required strength. They're, they're able to crush bones because they've got these very tight-fitting teeth that, that sort of lock together. But reptile teeth don't fit together that way. They don't overlap in the same way that mammal teeth do. So that was a much later development. So in order to be able to crush through bones, the T-Rex muscles in its jaw 
had to be much, much stronger. And in order for jaw muscles to get stronger, you need a bigger head. And that right. is what led to the T-Rex having this gigantic head because they needed the space to attach enough muscles to give it the clamping power that it could actually crunch through bones and get to the bone marrow. I think you've answered another question here now, that which, which is what uh, that was forming in my mind, because you're talking about the convergent evolution of between these two types of dinosaurs. Now, of course, there are other big carnivorous dinosaurs that had a similar body pattern, maybe with not as small as arms, but yeah, things like, yeah, yeah, Allosaurus, which lived long, long before the T-Rex, but was only distantly related. And so it was kind of a repeating pattern of these types of, of clearly successful carnivore design, like you said, but we don't see it today. If you think it was such a successful body form to have evolved multiple times that we would have evolved today, but what you're suggesting is we don't need it because we have new tooth technology that makes it obsolete. Yeah, basically the dental out layout of predatory carnivore mouths is a lot more efficient and they don't need gigantic heads. Um, interestingly, though, I, I did read some years ago about the why gorillas have such big heads and that's because they need powerful jaw muscles to crunch through uh, vegetation to get mm. enough that's what the sagittal crest is at the top of their head. They have muscles that go up to the top of their skull to be able to get the big, strong jaws. Yeah, yeah. And, they've, and they've also got occluding teeth, which allow them to crunch through things that they wouldn't necessarily be able to get through. So they've got both. They're, they're playing both mm. sides of the uh, evolutionary um, card game there. Um, but yeah, so the gigantic skulls, the T-Rex had a gigantic head because it allowed the muscles to get larger and stronger and allowed them to pulverize bones and access the bone marrow nutrients in there. And the, uh, the Meraxis also had a similar diet, so had a similar shaped head. Um, so we do kind of understand from this a little bit about why T-Rex has a big head. It's not just because it's the most famous dinosaur. Uh, it's actually so that it could survive on being able to crunch through those bones and actually get into the the delicious marrow inside the dinosaur bones. But I I, I still think, uh, you know, the jury's still out on, on why their arms are so tiny. I think we still need to get some more fossils to fully explain that, the tiny dinosaur arms on the T-Rex. Uh, well, if we find some enormous hats and tiny gloves, we know who they belong to. <laughs> I think we're lost. We're not lost. Not even any short-range radio signals yet? Except for a single, very powerful. Radio emission. Of course, a transmitter of that sort isn't exactly standard equipment. The science and technology must be absolutely mind-boggling. Of course, that's uh, it's mostly on the theoretical side. What's so far? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. All right, you're listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris, and yes, I am going to talk a little bit about reverse lasers, but... To make any of that make sense, I think we need to discuss forward lasers, can we call them? Yeah. Conventional uh, lasers? But, okay, so first of all, what is a laser? I know everyone probably knows the word, but it is actually an acronym, isn't it? It is an, it is an acronym that's become a, a verb, which is kind of interesting. But yeah, laser, it's... so Okay, this is the important thing with lasers. There's ways I like to think of it. There are kind of two components to a laser. That make it that make it work, and 
Um, the first one is captured in the name, which is Light Amplification by Stimulated Emission of Radiation, L-A-S-E-R. So it's an S, not a Z. And what this means is that um, essentially it uses something called stimulated emission. This is when an atom is hit by a photon, which is a particle of light, and is stimulated to emit a photon by being hit by that um, first photon. So it's sort of a chain reaction. It's kind of a chain reaction. And to do this, you need to have uh, the... There's a lot of stuff things to happen. You need to have a whole bunch of atoms in a material in an what we call an excited state. That's a higher energy quantum state. And when you have enough of the atoms in that higher energy state and you hit them with enough photons, then they will emit more photons. And this gives you your light amplification. Right. That is now known as lasing. So the verb to laze is when a material does this trick with the light. So it's not, it's not to laze, meaning to lie on the beach in the sun or... No, that would be with a Z. Right. Okay. Good. So that's that's the so this, this, that's the quantum physics part of it, and that's a very important part of the way lasers work. But for this to work, you also need to get enough light striking this um, this material, and so you, you raise all the um, the atoms into this higher energy state by applying energy to them. But to get the the photons hitting them in the right way, you need to have what we call an optical cavity, where you basically bounce light backwards and forwards so it's hitting all these atoms. And usually what this is, you have your lasing material um, between two mirrors, and one of these mirrors is what we call only partially silvered, so it doesn't reflect all the light, it lets some through, and that light that lets through is your laser beam. Yeah, so so the beam of a laser too is it doesn't uh, it doesn't spread out, so if you've got a torch beam or something like that, the light kind of dissipates away from the source. But with a laser beam, it doesn't get bigger as it moves away from the source, does it? It stays as a beam, well, as a narrow beam. It kind of depends on kind of depends on the laser. Okay. Um, that's generally the, the accepted thing. So a laser, essentially these photons which are bouncing backwards and forwards, when the, the atom emits the photon after it's hit by the first photon, it's, it's in step with the first photon. Mm-hmm. So you get what it's called coherent, um, so you get coherent light coming out, which basically means all the um, the light waves are in phase. They're all going up and down together. And yeah, they're all going in the same direction. But with some lasers, like um, your little uh, tiny lasers you find in everything these days, um, your little semiconductor lasers or laser diodes are known as, which you get in your, I don't know. I'm trying to find something that's not an obsolete technology, like a, um, <laughs> a compact disc or a... Uh, CD burner, DVD burner, um, those kind of tiny lasers, they do emit light kind of a bit more haphazardly. They need lenses to focus them. Right. So, yeah, there are some exceptions, but the basic principle applies. So, yeah, you have this material that emits the light, and then you have this optical cavity, which um, essentially concentrates the light, I suppose, bounces backwards and forwards to build up this um, this laser effect. So a few years ago, some physicists were thinking, what if we ran it backwards, essentially? (laughs) What if we could get the light to go back into the laser and then be absorbed by the material? So why did they want to know this? It was just a thought. It was just, uh, you know, just an idea that they were were touring around with. Um, And look, and it makes sense because people have for a long time trying to make 
make good materials for absorbing light. I mean, I think we've covered before on this show, like the blackest material ever um, have been, having been created there. You know, there's always people trying to create something that is absorbs lots of light. Um, the I think the previous kind of best attempt was in 2019. Um, there's this kind of material made out of carbon nanotubes. So basically a whole lot of little tubes. And when so light basically goes, bounces down these tubes and can't get out again. Um, so it's like a light trap. Yeah, a light trap kind of thing. Yeah, Because if you can find, you know, perfect ways to absorb light, then you can do stuff with it. You know, you can maybe make better solar panels or things like that. You can, you know, photosynthesis requires absorbing a lot of light. Night vision, seeing in the dark requires you to absorb more light than, say, our eyes do. This is apparently why creatures like owls that can see well at, at nighttime, they have a reflective surface at the back of their eye. That's where their eyes glow in the dark because they have a reflective surface. So basically the light comes through, goes through the retina, and then it's reflected back again. So they get another go at seeing the same light again. Right. So yeah, being able to absorb light means you can do more with it, essentially. Um, so yeah, this is this is the idea behind it. So they designed this and they managed to, these physicists back in about 2011, they managed to build kind of a reverse laser by focusing laser beams at different sides of this kind of lasing material it had to be just in phase, it would then be reabsorbed by the, the laser material. Um, but this required exactly the right setup, light hitting it in exactly the right way for and completely in phase for this to be absorbed. And so it's not a very practical kind of light absorbing device. Uh, which brings me to the recent research, which was published in the journal Science. We love things published in Science because it sounds very sciencey. <laughs> And they found a way to make a kind of a bit more, I suppose, more general reverse laser, a bit better absorber. And what this one does, it can absorb light at coming in from any angle. And essentially why they did that is that they found that they could set up the optical cavity, which is the, the bit inside the laser that bounces light backwards and forwards. If they used a couple of lenses in there, they could tune it so that it kind of was like a, um, well, it's quite like a telescope inside the laser essentially um, that would essentially bring the light back into the right focus, the right phase, the right conditions it needed to be reflected back and forwards within the cavity. So the light would still go, go in the cavity in this case and then be stuck bouncing backwards and forwards within the cavity. And then all they need to do is put in, uh, it's not to be a lasing material, they can put any absorbing material in there and it will absorb the photons that are trapped in this cavity. And they managed to do so. So theoretically, this thing should be able to be pretty much close to a perfect absorber. It should be able to absorb 100% of light. They did not achieve that, but they did pretty good. They used basically a piece of, I think it was frosted glass or something like that, to be their absorbing material, which only kind of absorbs around 15% of the light that goes through it normally. And they managed to get it to absorb around 94% of the light by putting it inside their little optical cavity. Oh, wow. So that's a huge jump in the absorption rate. Yeah, huge jump in the absorption rate. And what they figured out is there's kind of imperfections in the way their cavity works that causes it to um, to not be absorbing everything. You do kind of have to tune the it to not just the, um, the light itself, but also to the nature of the material they're using to do the absorption as well. So it's kind of a tricky process. But like I said, in theory, they can get up to, they, you should be able to do 100% absorption. 100% sounds like 
a stretch. I mean, again, this is a theoretical stretch. So, you know, I guess we'll believe that when we see it. But it is kind of a really interesting idea. Um, I suppose the question is, what do you do with this light once you've absorbed it? In this case, it's just going, like I said, a bit of tinted glass. It's just kind of being turned into thermal energy. The light energy is being turned into thermal energy. But, you know, if you can find some other way to harness that, you could, for instance, make better solar panels or something like that using this. Now, there are some drawbacks to this device. It can't absorb just any light. Uh, it has to absorb a laser still. So uh, light of a particular frequency. And it can be tuned to the frequency you want, but can only do one frequency. But there are other people working on optical cavities um, that can absorb a broader range of wavelengths, kind of they call white light cavities. And so the researchers in this one, they speculate that if you combine that technique with their special any angle light absorber then perhaps they could get to this ideal of something that can absorb all light coming into it which is um you know i guess it's good to know that if we can create a laser that emits powerful beams of light we can also then suck it up again um maybe it's cleaning up after ourselves too but it look does have plenty of exciting possibilities in the i guess the the field of making things dark And that's it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is recorded for 3CR in Melbourne on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And it airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We would love you to get in touch with us. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook where Lost in Science on 3CR or on Twitter where we're at Lost in Science 1. You can find us on your favourite podcast app where if you get the chance, please give us a good rating and review as that will raise us up in the search rankings so other people can find the science. Or you can listen to us however you listen to us now where at the same time every week, Claire, Stu and Chris get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.